0: So I've got, a, I've got a, a task in front of me today, and uh, the, the task is twofold. One, I'm going to introduce to you a new sermon series. We're, we're kicking off on a brand new one, um, and, and the sermon series that we have coming up, and I think you could just play it for me. I don't control it anymore. You've got it for me. Um, <clears throat> it's here, Beholding the Glory of God. That's the title of my sermon today, but on the, on the corner there, you see the Pilgrim Way. And that's a series that we're starting this week, and it's going to run at least three weeks, but I suspect it's going to run a little bit more than that, as Dan and I have talked through where we're going to go and what are the directions we're heading. And So there's a couple things that I just want to uh, draw your attention to at the beginning. We really feel like in this new year, uh, we want to focus on a sermon series that's a little bit more on the ground. A little bit more, what does it mean to be a pilgrim? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple in this world? Um, one of the things that I think we've done really well in this, in this past year is we've talked about these really high concepts and deep theology, and these are wonderful things, and we're never going to stray from that, but I think one of the things that we want to do is be balanced in our approach also so that we're giving uh, a more, I, I hate to use the term practical, but I think that's what, what people would suspect. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what we're doing. Now, I'm not doing that today. It's all still in the clouds. Um, but primarily, my goal is to ask you three questions today in this sermon series uh, as the beginning. And the, and the questions I get, I'm going to ask you are, first of all, who is a pilgrim? Why does a pilgrim exist? And where are pilgrims going? Now, there's one really key question that's missing from that equation, and it's what do pilgrims do? That's what every other message is going to be about. So you might be thinking to yourself, man, Adam didn't really uh, dial it in today. I didn't really leave here knowing exactly what to do. That's kind of the point. Uh, I I want to sort of serve it up on a plate for you. I want to define what a pilgrim is. I want to define why a pilgrim exists. And I want to say, where is a pilgrim going? Where are we heading? And then in the subsequent weeks, we'll break out what it is that a pilgrim actually does. The other thing, and this is why it's twofold, is that I hope to provide encouragement. Uh, We're heading into the new year. And I think change is probably on people's mind, and I think it's important that we talk about those things. And so I hope to encourage you as we go into that, and I, and I hope to weave it in there, and uh, I believe that God will do that for us. But just as one, <clears throat> one quick thing before we get started, and there's no, no introductory, uh, introductory story today. A little, a little bit different. I'm preaching a little bit different today so that I can get through all the text. Exactly. I'm not sticking just in one text today. This is a topogetical sermon. Um, you know, I'm, I'm taking a topic and I'm trying to exegete on top of that, um, and we're we're going to see where we go with that. Um, but if you'll do me, if you'll just indulge me one quick thing: How many people in here, ever, if it's at this church or in a book that you've read or another church you went to or a sermon you listened to online? heard something that caused you to think, that one thing that I do, I'm never going to do that again. Okay, now here, that's not a hypothetical question. Seeing that it's church, and church is about you participating, what I would like to see right now is by show of hands... You didn't didn't just come here today saying, I'm just going to listen. I'm going to make you raise your hands. Have you ever either at this church or listening to a podcast or reading a book heard something so glorious that you thought that one thing that I struggle with or that one thing that bothers me, I'm never going to do it again? Anybody? Okay. Some of you are perfect. and That's a good thing. Now, how many of you Through gritting of your teeth and through all the intestinal fortitude you could muster, made it about two weeks. Then on the third week, that thing reared its ugly head again. Is that anybody? It's remarkable. I saw more hands on the second than the first. I'm not sure how that's possible. Thanks for your honesty. I mean, if we can't be honest at church, we're pretty much in trouble. So we're going to focus on something today, and the title of my message is called Beholding the Glory of God. And as we do that, something really unique happens to us. What I'm going to suggest today, that is when we behold the glory of God, we change. And it's counterintuitive to the way the culture sees change and the way we even teach change. Um, And so we're going to touch on some of those things. But let's get to the text. My first question is, who is a pilgrim? And my first answer is a pilgrim is one who is freed by the Spirit to see the divine glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to argue from 2 Corinthians 13 um, maybe something a little bit different than you've heard. Now, it happens to be one of my absolute favorite verses in the whole Bible where the Spirit of the Lord is there as freedom. I love that verse. But what's the nature of that freedom? One of the interesting things is you know, when, when I was in Bible college, Almost anybody that was doing something weird um, spiritually, anytime you would try to talk to them about it, the first thing that they would say is, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Basically in a way to say, you can't tell me what I'm doing is not a little bit weird because where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Anybody ever come across someone like that? Or Or it's been in relation to the way someone worships through the use of spiritual gifts. Sometimes we hear that. We see things that, that, that might be a little bit outside of the normal for us, and <clears throat> people will say, well, yeah, that's just the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And I don't diminish those things, and I'm not saying that they're not true. I'm just saying that that's not the freedom that's talked about here. The freedom that's talked about here is, is a really unique kind of freedom, and it's a freedom that's unique only to those who are pilgrims. And uh, It's actually quite remarkable. I'm going to start actually in 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we see in uh, in verse 15 whenever Moses is read. Now, what does that mean? Basically, that just means the law. Whenever the law is read or whenever, whenever the book of Moses is read, this is speaking to those who have not had their hearts illuminated by the Holy Spirit to hear or see the gospel. And there's a veil. So what does a veil do? Well, a veil hides something. Isn't that the case? When somebody veils their face, do you know what their face looks like? You don't because it's veiled. And so something's hidden. Something is something's hidden from you. But something really interesting happens here. Is It says where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Well, what kind of freedom is this talking to? This, is this the freedom to do whatever I want whenever I want? Is that the kind of freedom that comes from the Spirit in this passage? Or is the, is the kind of freedom that comes from the Spirit in this passage the freedom to actually see things as they are? See, because if the veil is what we most need to have removed so that we can see the beauty of Christ and the gospel then the freedom that the Spirit brings is not that I can do whatever I want, but that I might have eyes. That the veil might be removed so that I could see the beauty and the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what this, isn't, isn't that, doesn't that seem to, to work so much better according to the passage? When the veil is removed, see it says, but when one turns to the Lord, When one turns to the Lord, when one has their heart regenerated, when one turns to Jesus, the veil is removed and they can see clearly. And that sight comes from the Spirit who enables them and gives them freedom. See, one of the really unique things about being a pilgrim is you can't make yourself one. See, I think, I think a lot of people and a lot of churches in America are full of people who would say, yeah, I'm a pilgrim. I'm somebody who's, who's trying to follow Jesus, and yet they're trying to do it completely naturally. Like if I just obey everything and I just do everything correctly, then I'm, then I'm following Christ. But, but this passage seems to suggest that you can only follow what you see. And if you haven't had the veil removed by the Spirit of God, if you haven't had the freedom to see ultimate reality in Christ, then you can't follow. You have to have the veil removed. And so, Adam, is that anywhere else? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're just making that up. Well, I, I, I do think it is somewhere else, and I put it up here. It's in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I took out 15. It's, it's important, but it just says this is the gospel that John was a herald to. and So I took that out because this completes the argument here in 16. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, 14 sorry, verse 14 we see that there is a we that have seen glory. The glory of God. Okay, good. In the person of Jesus. Good. And what comes from that fullness, that fullness of the glory, is that there is grace upon grace. So what we can say is that the radiant glory of God in the person of Christ is the means of abundant grace in our lives. So, without sight of the glory of Christ and the gospel, no abundant grace for you. I hope that the argument's making sense. With sight, sight propelled by the spirit of the living God, so that you might see and behold the glory of Christ, grace abounds. Well, how do we know that's true? Well, in, in Matthew 13 13, Jesus says about the Pharisees, even though they see me, they haven't really seen me. So there's a type of sight where you could see something, but not actually see the reality of it. And then in, in uh, Matthew 16, we find that um, Peter is able to accurately say, You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, Very good. But this isn't flesh and blood that's revealed that to you. But my Father revealed this to you. So we see that this, this sight, this illumination that comes from the Spirit is not something that can be conjured in and of ourselves. So you can't put yourself on the pilgrim's path. That's, that's the argument I'm trying to make here from, from the beginning. And it goes to my first point. So who is a pilgrim? It's one who's freed by the Spirit to see the divine glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. When we have the veil removed through the Spirit of God, we have the opportunity to see Christ as he really is in reality. And when that happens, when we behold his glory, what comes to us on that ray, on that beam of glory radiating in our hearts? Grace upon grace. Beholding equals abounding grace. That's how the pilgrimage starts. That's how you start on the path. Now, many of you in this room are saying, Adam, that totally makes sense. I, I, I only come to church nominally, and I know that it's the Spirit of God that has to illuminate my heart. And when my heart is illuminated, then I'll be able to see uh, the goodness that is Jesus in the gospel, and I have the ability to respond, and through that response, I have this new birth. If you've been at any church, a church for any a, a amount of time, that might make sense to you. But is that all that this verse says? the Corinthians verse. See, I think it says something a little bit different than that too. And it relates specifically to change and why I think it's really practically important for us. How many of us know that when we started our Christian life, we absolutely needed the supernatural work of God? I don't think there's anybody in here that would be like, Yep, started it all on my own. No. You, you know dead man can't choose. You had, to be made, you had to be made alive through the Spirit of God to see your utter need for Christ. And then he enabled you to respond. That's how that worked. <clears throat> but how many of us immediately started walking in our life to become like him in the most natural way possible? By doing it in our own power. And our own strength by saying something like, I'm never going to do that again. Or, watch, I'll put every barrier around my life. And by doing that, I'll change. And isn't isn't that, honestly, how we almost teach change right now? Like, if I was to go to counseling right now for something that devastated me, and I know this because I have plenty of people who have been in counseling, and it's one of the things that I've studied plenty one of the, one of one strategy um, for, for dealing with with things that you've had a trauma is is to continually just bring it up and talk about it, so that you it just diminishes sort of the feelings around it. If you just bring it up enough, it just sort of normalizes it, and everything becomes okay. Okay, I mean that strategy might have merit, and many of you might have had that that type of um, counseling, and it's worked for you. And I'm not saying that that's uh, it's not valid, but I, I am saying it's natural. It's a natural strategy. And it's one that we really like because baked into our DNA is this um, desire to fix it ourself, to save ourselves. <coughs> and so what happens is oftentimes we'll start on a pilgrimage, or we'll start being a pilgrim, and we know that it's the gospel that freed us, and then immediately we start looking to any other way to change except the gospel. We forget that we need to be reminded by that every day. That's the catalyst of our change, and I think this is what it says in 2 Corinthians. If we move on, in 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. <clears throat> Something very interesting. In 17, the Spirit of the Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. That freedom was affecting everything from 17 up to 15. The veil's been removed. You can now see ultimate reality. That's the Spirit of the Lord has given you freedom. But now we see that... Coming from the Lord, who is the Spirit, yet another kind of freedom it's the freedom to change. it's the freedom to be transformed, <clears throat> and this is the kind of freedom that we don 't talk very much about. and what is it, what is it saying here? and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that I am that this is, this is what the passage is is arguing. This transformation into the into the image from one degree uh, to another. And for this, this comes from, what's the this? The this is the transformation. And where does the transformation come from? It says here, the Lord who is the Spirit. And if the Spirit is bringing freedom, then it... It necessitates that the freedom that we have to behold the gospel in the first place is that same freedom that we continue to get through the Holy Spirit to see Christ and behold him as he really is. And as we see him for who he really is, and as we behold him, we change. Which is completely opposite to the way that we say change happens. So this next year, if I wanted to lose 20 20 pounds, don't laugh about that. It needs to be more, but let's just say I wanted to. Many people would say, or dieticians would say, every basically, every waking minute, what you need to do is think about losing those 20 pounds. So first things first, get me a food journal. That's right. You're gonna write down what you had, and you're gonna weigh it. That sounds super fun already. Sign me up. Can't wait for that. But then you also gotta talk to somebody. You have been working out? How much way? Then you weigh yourself constantly. So, what, what, what we do in our culture, in our world, is to say, well, the one big problem that I have, or the way I change, is by focusing on the thing I don't like about myself, or the thing that I most need to change, and by focusing and being hyper focused on it, then somehow um, I'll change. But the, but, but the Bible isn't that way at all. What the Bible says is that, hey, listen, do you want to change? Do you want to be transformed? You do that by taking those things that you struggle with and don't make them the center. You don't make that the thing that you most are concerned about. You don't make that the center of your life. Instead, you behold the glory of the Lord. And you delight in who the Lord is for you. Because from the glory of the Lord that the Holy Spirit enabled you to see, what comes? Grace upon grace kindness in you through the person of Jesus Christ poured out over and over again. Isn't that a better catalyst to change? It is for me. And yet so often we find ourselves surprised on the pilgrim way because we have this one struggle and every single one of you raised your hand in here that there was this struggle that you heard about that you said I'll never do that again but a mere weeks later you did it again. So We're all fellow pilgrims on that. We all share that same uh, willpower weakness that I I couldn't do it in my own strength. And what we've done is that we've, we've, whether intentionally or whether it's just naturally, culturally, is we've taken that one big thing or those things that we most need to change and we've almost put them above the grace and the power of God to change me. I've done that. I've made things in my life to see, some of my sins have hurt people that I love. I don't know if you're like that, or maybe it's only me. Maybe I'm the only person whose sinful nature has hurt and damaged close personal relationships. But when that happens, you can, it's really easy to make a promise to yourself. I'm never going to do that again. And you can set up every wall around yourself so that you never do it again. And, and, and maybe that's good. And maybe you won't really do it again. M- maybe. What if you do? Does it really change? Or are you just setting up boundaries for yourself? See, the kind of change that I want is not just change, but what 2 Corinthians says is transformation. I want to be transformed, not just changing in my actions, not just having different actions, but I want my very nature to be transformed into the image of Christ. So that my will becomes what his will is for me. See, isn't that ultimate freedom? To do the things that you really want to do. I mean, that's, that's what we love freedom to be called, right? But imagine this. Imagine if the things that you most wanted to do were the things that were in accordance with God's will for your life. If you could see ultimate reality and then... Because of ultimate reality, you see you need to make these changes. And then God gives you the freedom to also make those changes. Do <laughs> you see how that's working? So a pilgrim is a pilgrim is a freed person by the Spirit of God, both to see the glory of God originally and to continue beholding. Notice how in 2 Corinthians it doesn't say, and those who beheld the glory of God were transformed. It's those who are beholding the glory of God are being transformed. There is a progressive nature to this transformation, meaning there isn't ever a time where you say, I've beheld enough glory now. I've done, all, I've done all the uh, beholding of glory that I need to. Now, let me just focus on the thing I most need to change with my natural abilities, and I'm just going to go do it. It's not how it works. What I'm interested in, and I think what most of you would be interested in, is Christ-exalting transformation. So we can transform ourselves. It happens very naturally. There are many people in the world that have transformed themselves, and transformed themselves both morally and in their character. But there's one big difference. That kind of change that's natural results in praise to the glory of myself but the kind of transformation that happens only by beholding the Spirit of God, only coming through the grace upon grace, that beam of radiance in our own heart that changes us. Who gets the glory then? Well, turn to Ephesians, and I'm going to answer the third question. Why does a pilgrim exist? And I'll read it for you. Ephesians 1, starting in 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, If you were to go back and trace out the actions of God in there, what you would find is election, choice. Says it right there. You would find that God's action deals with our holiness, God's action deals with our blamelessness, God's action is our predestination, God's action is our adoption, and God's action is making it all the past in the person of Jesus Christ. What's our only action in the passage? praising his glorious grace. See, Christ exalting transformation is an activity of God for God's benefit. See, when we're transformed by the gospel, when those things in our lives that we don't like are transformed by beholding the glory of God and experiencing grace upon grace, when we know that it's grace alone that not only saved us, but it empowers us to change, who gets the glory then? God gets the glory. That, that's super important. Why does a pilgrim exist? Think about this for a second God's action. He chose you before the foundation of the world. In Christ he makes you holy as if Christ as uh, as Christ is holy. You are blameless now in standing because of Christ. Not only were you chosen, he predestined you for adoption as sons and daughters. Meaning he knew the things that would transpire in your life to make you more like him. He did it all through the person of Jesus. And what's your response to that? What does Ephesians say? You should Praise the glory of his grace. So that grace upon grace in John chapter 1 that we got by beholding in the first place, that same grace, what we're supposed to do with it then is move it to praise. So where have you heard biblically that change is dependent upon you? And yet read 9 out of 10 books off the shelf, even in Christian bookstores, and what are they going to tell you? Wake up at 7 a.m meditate for 1 hour. These are not bad things. I I really want to be careful before I go too far there. But here's the difference. Imagine yourself in an orchard of lovely fruits. Let's just call this is a peach orchard. Uh, whether or not you like peaches or not, in my imagination you're in a peach orchard today. So imagine yourself there. And there's all these wonderful juicy peaches. And you're in the vicinity of the peaches, but you never actually pick and eat one. That's like a terrible position to be in. That's what it's like when we do things in order to try to get God's favor. Like, for instance, what I'm going to do to change is I'm going to memorize 15 verses um, and through that memory alone, God's going to change me. Now, can God use his word to change you? Absolutely he can. But there is a big difference in doing things in a way and being in the vicinity of peaches. And there's a totally different thing of grabbing one off the tree, taking a bite, having the juice go down your mouth and experiencing and delighting in the person of Christ. Okay, so we can do things and we can set up systems for change. But if we're doing it <clears throat> on our own strength, you can actually do spiritual things, things in the Bible in your, in your own strength. You can It's totally true. But there's also another type of person that can grab the peach of his grace and bite deeply and say, oh, how juicy, how wonderful, how amazing. And because it's that, who gets the praise then? God does. And what did we get in return? The delight of eating a wonderful peach. Who's got it better than a pilgrim? Adam, Okay, you said it's to the glory of his grace. Does it say that anywhere else? It does. Just write down in verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So here we have glory again. Is that the only place? No, it's also in 14. This is speaking about the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it To the praise of his glory. So when we praise God's glory, when we behold it and we praise it, that's the apex of being a pilgrim. That's that's what it means to be a pilgrim. That's That's why you exist. But it means something else here, and I think this is interesting. It means that God's action in our life can be viewed as a a relentless pursuit of our praise. Think about that for a second. All those actions of God, choosing, predestination, making you holy, making you blameless, who does that benefit? Benefits you. Aren't you the one who gets adopted? Aren't you the one that gets the, the holy and blameless state? Aren't you the one that gets those things? And so we see God in His grace relentlessly pursuing you with His beauty in order to enthrall you. Grace upon grace. John 1. And not only grace upon grace, but grace upon grace upon grace. Inexhaustible grace, just more of it. Doesn't Paul say later, where sin abounds, grace all the more? You get this idea? Now, so, so many of us have this um, minimalist mindset when it comes to grace, that I just need just enough to get by, and I don't, wanna, I don't want too much. Well, I, I think that's, that's, that's a little bit contrary to what's happening here. We see the pursuit of God is relentless, and he's pursuing our praise. It means that Christ laid down his life to display the glory of his grace and to enthrall us with himself. Okay. Hopefully that encourages you. I'm going to come back to that and the implications of this because that's sort of an unbalanced approach on this, but I want to show you that part. There's another part to that. Okay, I need to answer a couple more questions. Oh, man. We're going to do it. Question number three. Where are pilgrims heading? I love this one. It's found in Ephesians also. It's chapter 2. Starts in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the key, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So where as pilgrims are we heading? We're heading to the mountain range of God's grace. One of the things that I find absolutely encouraging about where we're headed and, and absolutely encouraging about this, this pilgrim life is that all this growing and becoming like uh like Jesus, being conformed to his image, all of that, sometimes we think that when heaven comes or when, when Christ restores all things and we're with him, things just become static. Everything just is the way it is from that point forward. But, but, but this verse says something a little bit different than that. It says in the coming ages, meaning there's, there's, there's sort of an ongoing revelation that happens. Even when we're with Jesus, See, we, we, sometimes we have this, um, this understanding that one day we're going to see him face to face and we'll just know everything perfectly and, and we'll, we'll have just got it all in one dump, like one download. But, but that's not the idea. The idea is that there's this, these mountain ranges of grace that as you see the person of Jesus Christ, what does it say? The kindness and the grace of God, he shows it to us in immeasurable ways. So imagine yourself climbing up a mountain peak that took you 10,000 years. And I don't mean 10,000 agonizing years. Now, some of you have climbed a mountain before and you know that when you come up to the peak and you can finally see that you're at the, t- the top, there's this euphoria. I can only uh, hypothesize because I ain't climbing no mountain. <laughs> but I will know one day what it's like to climb a mountain is what will happen is through this this ongoing revealing of the goodness and the grace of God. We climb these mountains, and imagine just for a second, you get to the top, and what do you see? A never-ending range of mountains of God's grace. So the idea and the understanding when we're with Christ is that we continue to grow. We continue to We continue to become more like him because he continues to reveal things to us. And as he continues to reveal, our capacity for grace grows. And as our capacity for grace grows, we praise all the more. And it just keeps going. But guess what? There's no end to that cycle because there's no end to the depth and the width of the grace of God. So many of us think that the grace of God is for us now. And that's true. But what does it say in the coming ages? What is it that's going to propel us? What is it that's going to motivate us? What is it that's going to bring glory to God? Him showing His kindness and grace in us through the person of Jesus Christ. That doesn't change. It only gets better, and it gets, and it's in a sinless way. Can you imagine? Effort, but in a sinless way. Growth, continual growth, continual conformity to His image. We'll never get there. We can't be God. We'll never never be just like him, but we'll conform, continue to conform, continue to love, continue to adore, continue to go up more mountains, and we'll continue to see grace forever. That's where the pilgrim is going. That's what this life is all about. So that very glory that you beheld in the first place through the Spirit of God, that he enabled you to, that he enabled you to see Christ, that, that glory that you behold progressively now as you're becoming like him, it's that same glory that you're going to be praising when you're with him and you see him face to face. So you might as well be good about seeing it now. Three implications for this. And I'm going to try to be quick here, especially with the last two the first, like, I got I to gotta, I gotta say this. First implication is that the Pilgrim Way is about God and not us. Now, I told you earlier that we have within us, baked into our very DNA, a, a desire to be made much of. And one of the things that I think is very pervasive in our culture, in our subculture of being Christians and of being disciples, is that there are a, a, a lot of people who take the promises and, and, and take the grace of God, and they make themselves the center of his action. Now, remember in Ephesians 1, God has all these actions for us, but it results in what? The, us praising the glory of his grace when we see him for who he really is. Now, there's, there is another, another thing that happens where sometimes Christians can say things like this. Christ died to make much of me. He rescued me to make much of me. He forgave me to make much of me. He removed his, ma- uh, his wrath to make much of me. And, and maybe that sounds good to you. But it's completely natural. And, it, and it's, to the pra- it's not to the praise of the glory of his grace, it's to the praise of the glory of his affirmation of me. Now, who, who of us in here don't like to be affirmed? We love to be affirmed. And some of us love to just claim the promises that we have in, the, in, in our identity in God. But sometimes we don't take that and wrap it back up to praise. We take it on ourselves and say, oh, isn't it so great that God just makes so much of me? And so we misunderstand the love of God because we think as long as I'm feeling loved and this God continues to wrap his arms around me in warmth and everything goes my way, then I know I feel loved. But what happens when God crushes you? See, I said it earlier, that God has a relentless pursuit of our praise, and he wants to enthrall us with his grace, and that's totally true, but there are times when he'll crush us because we have vestiges and remnants of pride and of wanting to have the glory for ourselves. And so God will be gracious To hurt us. He'll be gracious to do those things so that we might see that what we most need is his glory and not us to be made much of. And I just need to say that out here because for this this reason, if not only, I've had about six or seven counseling sessions in this past year where people just couldn't understand the idea that God's full-time job wasn't to make them feel good about themselves. Isn't that just what God is for? No. He does some great things for you, but it's so that you would see his glory and praise him for it. Don't short circuit that. So it's about God. The other thing is that there's failure on the pilgrim way. Now, I just told you that real transformation happens when we behold the glory of God, and as we behold the glory of God, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Um, It's not a technique, folks. You can't just say, I want to change some things in my life, so tomorrow I'm going to start beholding the glory of God, and then by Thursday I'll be different and changed. That's not how it works. The reason you know your utter need for the gospel is because it had to be revealed to you. And in your life, it's going to be revealed to you in lots of different ways. And you know what's funny? The way that I've learned the most about myself in this life is by failing. And i failed a whole lot. But one of the great things about someone being on the pilgrim way is we remember John 1, and we know that when we behold the Son, as from the Father, what happens? From his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. So, brothers and sisters, what thing is holding you back from experiencing God's grace upon grace what is it because there is failure on the pilgrim way it is going to happen but that failure is meant to cause us and draw us near and uh, for us to understand our need of the gospel not for us to hide from God so if you fail don't hide use it as an opportunity to see more of the grace of God operating in your life And the third implication is there's room for many pilgrims on the way. And this is something I was really encouraged this week, and it's in 2 Corinthians, and it's in 4. It starts in 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, and this is the part that I love, so that as grace extends to more and more, people it may increase thanksgiving to what the glory of God aren't we back to full circle so as pilgrims one of the reasons that we ask more people to be pilgrims and one of the reasons we delight in the grace of God is so that as more people come into the family of God it increases thanksgiving to the glory of God and then who gets the praise God does this is why he wants a big family I mean, if you read Romans 8.29, he says it works together for good those who were chosen. And then it says immediately after, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his will so that he might be the firstborn among many. Meaning, I want to have a big family. I don't want you to just, just your life to just revolve around you being a pilgrim, but I want a big family. I want more people to see grace. And so there's room for plenty of pilgrims. And I'm sure Dan is going to touch more on that. And there's about a thousand more things that I can say, but I'm going to stop there. I hope you find that message encouraging, especially as you come into a new year. So whatever strategy you had to be better in 2019, I hope that I obliterated it. I hope that you leave here thinking the only change that I want is Christ exalting transformation that comes through beholding him in the glory of his gospel that I need not only the first day, but I need every day of my life. And I'm going to pray to that end. As I pray, if I could have the ushers come up, um, for communion and today, um, as normal communion is a time for those who are pilgrims, those who are already on the way, those who have already trusted in Christ. And so if that's you, please come today. Um, let's pray. God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for your glory. We thank you that your word in five, seven, 10, 15 different places all bring out the same things over and over again so that it, it, it's not our wisdom, but it's your wisdom. It's your word that changes us. It's, it's your spirit that changes us. Father, I pray that as pilgrims, those of us in this room who know and trust you, God, I I pray that we would live our lives according to the freedom that we have through the Spirit, to see reality, and because of that reality, we can change, we can be transformed. So, Father, I pray that you would give us boldness, that you would give us a passion for your glory, and that it would mark us every day of our lives. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.